Well, we're marking the second annual National Day for Truth and Reconciliation today. Truth and Reconciliation Commission Head Murray Sinclair is urging Canadians to pause and reflect today to remember Indigenous survivors of the residential school system and the children who never made it out. Sinclair says Indigenous people are in a constant state of grieving and are still feeling the effects of the system even today. Our country's history is complicated and it is not always easy to review. But you don't make it better by ignoring it or glossing over it. We must all recognize that the Indian residential school system is not just something for your history books. It is something that Indigenous peoples are still feeling the effects of each and every day. Sinclair says Canadians should strive to carry out the TRC's calls to action and resolve to do better. He made the comments at a national commemorative gathering in Ottawa, attended by both the Prime Minister and the Governor-General today. Now, one of those 94 calls to action from the TRC was that the federal government must eliminate the education gap between Indigenous people and other Canadians. Many universities have embraced that call by increasing Indigenous representation in their institutions. Uh, Increasing the percentage isn't easy, since Indigenous people are also underrepresented in graduate programs, which often produces faculty members. And the result has been some really fierce competition amongst universities who seek to attract Indigenous candidates by trying to do more decreasing barriers, such as academic qualifications or prior prior teaching experience. Uh, Cluster hiring, that's the process of recruiting multiple faculty members at the same time, is a popular strategy as well, uh, as universities are eager to demonstrate their commitment to reconciliation. But that also leaves universities in Canada reckoning with how to verify Indigenous heritage as they try to hire more equitably. And what do they do when someone's claim of Indigenous heritage is called into question? Well, that's the entire basis of a story the cover story in this month's McLean magazine. And joining me now is Michelle Sisa. She's a freelance journalist and journalist and author of that cover story in McLean's called The Curious Case of Gina Adams, A Pretendian Investigation. Michelle, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I guess just to start at the beginning, because we're talking a lot about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission today, um, there was a call to action to improve uh, representation, Indigenous representation in universities and colleges. And I, I imagine they've responded to that. And that's uh, that's part of what we're seeing here. Yes, they definitely have. So one of the major ways that universities um, have responded to the call is by trying to increase representation of faculty members who are Indigenous, as well as the number of Indigenous students. So that's taken a lot of forms, but one of them is through um, cluster hiring where there's an effort to hire multiple faculty members at once who identify as indigenous, which is something that my former employer, Emily Carr engaged in, as well as many other universities in Canada. I guess, I mean, how effective has it been? Because it is difficult to try to hire a lot of people all at once, no matter who you're trying to hire. Yeah, and there's there's other barriers too, or hurdles, I guess you could say, with uh, hiring Indigenous people. And one of them is that, um, you know, about 5% of the Canadian population identifies as Indigenous, but Indigenous people have been underrepresented in academia for a long time. So there's not as many Indigenous PhD students or graduate students, and that means there's not as many who are graduating um, who are qualified to be faculty members. So when every university in Canada is scrambling to hire Indigenous faculty and there's a limited supply, uh, you run into a problem, a supply and demand problem, um, which I think a lot of universities have encountered. And it's led to some strange outcomes, which is the topic of my story. Yes, I was going to say, as your investigation points out, there are gaps when it comes to due diligence, perhaps, but specifically on how to respond if there are questions uh, that arise. 
Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I think a lot of universities um, implemented these cluster hiring processes by doing a self-identification requirement. So candidates who identified as Indigenous could apply for these roles. Um, and self-identification has been kind of the way that Indigenous people are counted in Canada for a long time. It's how the Statistics Canada like census um, identifies Indigenous people. And for a long time, it made sense because there weren't many benefits to being Indigenous for most of Canadian history. And for many Indigenous people, there's still very few benefits. But since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission re released their report and their recommendations, there have been some concerted efforts to um, improve conditions for Indigenous people. And there have been opportunities presented that are specific for self-identified Indigenous people. Um, and so the system of self-identification worked really well when there wasn't really much to get out of it. But I think one of the problems is once you start incentivizing something, particularly if it's something like a faculty job at a university, which is very hard to get, very competitive, it does incentivize people to tick that box, even if their claim might be a little bit fuzzy, or I think in some cases, outright fictitious. I should mention to listeners, you are a member of the Muskie Cree Lake First Nation. Um, you understand the complex, you grew up in Vancouver, you understand the complexities around identity and so forth. So I imagine you walked into this one with a lot of different thoughts and and and, and sort of inquisitive, inquisitive nature to try to figure out what was going on here. Yeah, um, I I mean, I so I'm a member of the Muskie Lake Cree Nation, which is in Treaty 6, but I grew up in Vancouver. Um, and so I have the the fairly common experience of being both mixed race and and raised off reserve. And I think like a lot of Indigenous people, I grew up feeling a bit disconnected from my culture and also just not really sure if I counted as an Indigenous person because the, the media depictions of Indigenous people I saw, the ideas that people had about Indigenous people, they didn't ever seem like they reflected my experience. Um, you know, there still, there weren't very nuanced depictions of Indigenous people in the media at all when I was growing up and there's still not a ton out there. Um, and I didn't really know a lot of other Cree people in Vancouver. So I I often felt for a lot of my youth, like maybe I wasn't really Indigenous enough to call myself Indigenous even. Like maybe it wasn't um, an identity that belonged to me. And I think that's a common experience. And that's also an ambiguity that I think gets exploited a little bit in some of these instances of people pretending to be Indigenous is they're using these common narratives of feeling disconnected or of being white passing to give their story some legitimacy. Um, and I think that is something that I brought to reporting the story and to this experience is I, I had that insight as well as um, some understanding of what it's like to come from a family where, you know, your your cultural connections are disrupted by things like residential school and by dislocation. So when you set out on this, uh, I mean, you were working at this at this institution, Emily Carr, when, when this happened, what had what did you set out to find? I mean, what happened and what did you set out to find? Well, when I was working at Emily Carr, um, there was a process of hiring a group of Indigenous faculty, which at the time I was really excited about. I mean, I didn't have a lot of Indigenous faculty teaching me when I was in school. I thought it was a wonderful idea. I was really excited about it. And um, and I think most people at Emily Carr would agree. It was a great initiative. It was a really well-meaning initiative. 
And then one of the faculty members who was hired, Gina Adams, who is an artist from Maine in the United States, um, about a year and a half after she was hired, there was an anonymous Twitter account called No More Red Face, <clears throat> which was dedicated to calling out people whose claims maybe didn't stand up to scrutiny. And that account posted a thread about Gina Adams claiming that the story she told, which was that her grandfather was Ojibwe from the White Earth Nation in Minnesota, and that he'd been taken to residential school, and that that was her, you know, the source of her Indigenous identity, that he was actually a white man who was from Massachusetts. And it was a pretty shocking allegation. It came kind of on the heels of a lot of other big stories that listeners might be familiar with. So Michelle Latimer, mm -hmm. um, a few other faculty members at different universities had been called out earlier that year. And it really felt like there were these scandals <laughs> happening everywhere. It was this really strange time where it just seemed like every university was grappling with this publicly or not. And, you know, as someone who worked at Emily Carr, I was really interested to see how the university would respond. And I think what was surprising to me um, and disappointing was that there really wasn't much of a response. It seemed like nobody knew what to do with this rumor. There was no process in place to address it. And so nothing happened for a long time. Lots of people asked questions and those questions were just kind of dismissed. The issue got swept under the rug. Um, and I ended up leaving that job earlier this year in February. And after that, I, I just decided to try and figure out myself if it was true. Um, and I didn't feel like I was in conflict anymore because I no longer worked at the university. So I didn't feel obligated to protect their reputation the same way. And so I did my own investigation um, and tried to replicate the, the findings that had been shared on Twitter. And I ended up finding uh, a lot of information about Gina Adams and her family that was pretty surprising. My guest is Michelle Sisa. She's a freelance journalist and author of this month's cover story in McLean's called The Curious Case of Gina Adams, a pretendian investigation. We've been talking about uh, the rush uh, that uh, Canadian institutions, uh, uh, educational institutions have been under to try and find more Indigenous staff. It is difficult, uh, but it's also led to a lot of good things, but also led to some conflicts and just how ill-equipped at times these institutions are to deal with these questions about identity that arise. So you went out to find out more about what Gina Adams was was all about and you did come across uh i mean you in the article spells it out beautifully you did come across some contradictions yes and i mean i i do want to say i think it's a really delicate thing to ask somebody about their identity and you know indigenous people have really a lot of them been disconnected from their families and cultures um through things like the 60 scoop through residential school through all of these deliberate efforts of colonialism. And as a result, a lot of people don't know what community they come from, you know, what their family background is. And so I, I was really cognizant of that while working on this story. And I, I really don't want the takeaway to be that people should start investigating every indigenous person, you know, who doesn't look indigenous enough or doesn't resonate with their idea of what an indigenous person should be. But yeah. in this case, there were a lot of, a lot of questions that seem like they should be straightforward to answer um, with no answers forthcoming. So Gina Adams' story was that her grandfather had been born on the White Earth Nation, that he was taken to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, um, and that he then changed his name and entire identity and passed as a white man named Albert Terrio for the rest of his life. And 
I thought that was a pretty um, unlikely story in some ways that someone could change their identity so completely and not leave a trace of who they used to be. And so I started by just looking for her grandfather um, in the in the public record. So I made an ancestry.com profile. I looked yeah. at newspaper clippings and I found a lot of information about him. Um, and, you know, one thing that was pretty surprising was that none of it was very hard to find. So I found his birth certificate. I found his parents, um, you know, his father's World War I draft card. I found information about his siblings, his brother's obituary, all kinds of stuff. I found newspaper clippings about Gina Adams' family. And I think what was really shocking is that there, there was just this huge abundance of information that was easy to find that showed pretty definitively that her grandfather was not born on the White Earth Nation. Um, and, you know, family histories are complicated, but the story she told it was pretty straightforward to disprove. And I, I think that there are people who've been adopted into First Nations who have complicated histories, but I really believe in tribal sovereignty and that each nation has the right to determine its membership. And so I did speak to the White Earth Nation um, and they confirmed that she's not in their membership records. Nobody in her family is, you know, they'd never heard of her. She'd never contacted them. So as far as they knew, she had no connections to the tribe. And a lot of people have ambiguous family histories. They have rumors about, you know, being Native American or having indigenous descent somewhere in the family tree. Um, and I, I recognize that it's sometimes hard for people to figure out if that's true or just a family story, but there's, there's ways to, uh, to try and reconcile that part of yourself and figure out that family history. Um, but I think it's really careful that, or really important that people, you know, not appropriate someone else's trauma or family history, um, saying that your grandparent went to residential school you know, when they were a white man born in Massachusetts is a pretty big and troubling lie to tell. Yeah, I, I mean, the institution obviously had had trouble dealing with this. What ultimately happened? Well, for a long time, nothing happened. I think they they spoke to Gina and she had a story about her version of events, which was that, you know, her grandfather didn't have any records. Nobody even knew the name he was born under when he was born on the white earth nation so there was no way for her to prove her story but she said it's absolutely true and they accepted that explanation um and you know it's kind of hard to say why why they did that um I think it might have been a combination of you know that she was a respected colleague and by all accounts a really great teacher and I think some of it was just a problem that reoccurs in a lot of these well-meaning initiatives which is that there's a lot of people who don't have much of an understanding of indigenous identity or history. So they want to do the right thing, but they don't, they don't have enough of a nuanced understanding of, you know, what indigenous communities are, what indigenous identity means. And so they make mistakes. And I think that's what happened here. Um, but ultimately Gina Adams remained employed until shortly before the story was published. So after McLean's reached out to the university um, for fact checking before the article's publication, uh, and between that that fact checking contact and the publication of the article a month later, Gina Adams resigned. In the grander scheme of things, and because it's so 
you know, we're just at the beginning of this and, and it is very difficult to establish what you need to do to, to check people's identity. You know, you mentioned it yourself, but in the grander scheme of things, there is something at play here about truth and reconciliation, how it works and good intentions and bad outcomes. So what do you think that is? I mean, I think it's that people have to accept that they might make mistakes as we undergo this process of reconciliation. So I mean, that's, that's kind of the harder thing to reckon with, right, is, is that you, you want to do the right thing. Maybe you want to make more space for Indigenous people in universities. But if you make a mistake and you hire someone who is presenting their identity in a way that's not true, if they're appropriating a role that was meant for an Indigenous person, that's a mistake. And, and universities need to be accountable to that. And I think that's that's kind of the hardest part, right? Nobody wants to make those errors. Nobody wants to inadvertently say something that's offensive or racist. Um, and there's kind of a paralysis, I think, that sets in when people are so afraid of doing the wrong thing that they just stop acting altogether. So hiring Indigenous people <laughs> seems like a straightforward good thing. But then when mistakes are made, there has to be a process to deal with it. Um, and I did talk to some people in my story, including Jacqueline Ottman, who's the president of First Nations University and who co-chaired the first National Indigenous Identity Forum. And I also talked to Jean Tia, who's a Métis lawyer, who's uh, done a lot of work in this area. And they both emphasized, you know, there has to be accountability to the community. So Indigenous people have questions about someone's identity. Those need to be answered. We shouldn't be investigating everybody. We shouldn't be asking people to prove themselves on demand. But there has to be some kind of accountability to a community. That's, that's a lot of what Indigenous identity is. You belong to a nation, you belong to a people, and you're responsible to them. Um, you can't be Indigenous in isolation. It's not, you know, like hair color or eye color. It's not just a trait that describes you. It's a living relationship. And I think that's something that hasn't necessarily been well understood by institutions, and it's a learning process. And I hope that they'll be willing to go on that journey and keep learning and growing in their efforts. Well, Michelle Sisa, thank you so much. Um, it was a fantastic and very informative article. I would suggest people read it, and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. You can read Michelle Sisa's piece in the October edition of McLean's, which is on newsstands now. You can always visit mclean's.ca for daily updates.